Hi, Rabbi Schaefer here, and I'm very excited to tell you that the new book, The Ten Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make, is going to be available this Hanukkah. It's been very, very widely received. We sent out about a thousand pre-publication copies to marriage therapists, people who work with young couples, and the response has been really, truly amazing. Please look for it at the schmooze.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com, or your local Jewish bookstore. Okay, let's begin. First of all, I want to thank 10K Bate Yisrael. It's a wonderful organization, a wonderful concept, a wonderful organization, and I think they're doing fantastic work. Please support them. Please uh, participate in their shiurim. They're doing a great, great, a phenomenal job. And certainly if you're in the, uh, <clears throat> if you're able to think of ideas and shaduchim, etc., please, uh, please use their system to, uh, to further the hopes of many people and many shaduchim. Okay, <clears throat> let us begin. Over the past 15 years, I have dealt with literally hundreds and hundreds of couples. Now, typically, these are couples who are having trouble, they're having issues, and things are not going as they initially expected. And I've had a chance to glean some interesting ideas. The book, The Ten Really Dumb Mistakes, really is the outgrowth of that because I found that people are typically making mistakes. But I'd like to share with you this evening a perspective that is much more applicable to people in the dating scene than in the marriage scene. And the first observation I have is that whenever I deal with a couple having trouble, I'll sort of try to get the background, try to get the story, and I find that invariably they began the process of dating knowing the following. I know everything there is to know about me. I know everything I know about what I need in a spouse, and I know everything I need to know about marriage, and then they got married. And they discovered the following. They didn't know themselves. They surely didn't know the opposite gender, what they needed in a spouse, and they surely didn't know the institution of marriage. And I'd like to share with you two yesodos that really define the mistake. Number one, if you ask these people, and ask, by the way, happily married people or not happily married people, the following question. The person that you're married to, is it the same person that you were going out with? I have found this over and over, absolutely not. They could be happily married. I could love my spouse. It would be great, but this is not the person I was dating, number one. And number two, that which you thought mattered when you were dating, that which you needed, that which you wanted, that which was an absolute deal-breaker, do those things, now that you're married five years, do you find those things really mattered? Again, the answer is absolutely not. Had I known what marriage was really like, had I known what this really was, I never would have thought those things are important, and the things I never dreamt about really are important. Okay, now with that as a background, I'd like to begin to discuss some of the ten really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make. Now the reason why I think this is very applicable to our audience is because when you have a better understanding as to what a marriage needs and where marriages go off the rails... I think you'll have a much better understanding what you should be looking for, what is important, what's not important, and what really it is that you need in a marriage. So let's begin. Avram Avinu lifts up his eyes, and on the horizon he sees three wayfarers. To his knowledge, they're just Arabs. He runs out to greet them. Please do not pass. He ushers them in. He feeds them. He gives them drink. And he stands over them like a waiter. Avram Avinu did not know they were Malachim. To his knowledge, they were regular people. 
and he fed them and gave them to drink, and he's standing over them, serving them. At a certain point, one of the malachim say, Ayei Sara Ishtecha, where is Sara, your wife? Now, if you think about that, that's a, a, kind of rude. In other words, meaning, here the man is serving you, he <clears throat> gave you food, gave you drink, and he's standing like a waiter, and you ask him, where's your wife? That doesn't sound appropriate. Rashi points out, Malachi Asharis Hayu. These were not regular malachim, the highest level of malachim, Yodim Hayu Eifo Sara Imenu Haisa. They knew exactly where Sara Imenu was. Why then did they ask? To make Sarah more beloved in Avram's eyes. Avram would answer, She's modest. She's in the tent. She's not out in the limelight. And by saying those words, Avram would have a greater appreciation for the modesty of Sarah. By saying those words, he would greater appreciate her. They asked the question so that he would answer, To make her more beloved in his eyes. And that's Rashi's answer. Now I'd like to ask you what I consider the obvious question on that Rashi. And that is, we're not dealing with kids. We're not dealing with young couple. But more than that, if I were to ask you what is the greatest obstacle to a successful marriage, I think everyone would agree the single greatest obstacle to a successful marriage is when you're self-centered. When the world begins and ends in my Dalit Amos, I'm a difficult person to be married to. But we're dealing here with two of the most other-centered individuals you could ever imagine. Avram Avinu is the paradigm of chesed, giving loving-kindness. <clears throat> Sari Menu is his equal. When you two, take two such tzaddikim who are totally devoted, totally given over to the other, you can't begin to imagine the beautiful marriage that they had. Says the Maral, in the history of mankind, there was never a bond, never a connection between husband and wife, as there was between Sarah and Avram. So here's the question. If they have the quintessential marriage, why did the Malachim feel they had to improve it? They weren't young kids, they weren't quibbling, they weren't quarreling, they had the perfect marriage, and the Malachim felt they had to make her more beloved in his eyes. The question is, that doesn't sound right, and it surely doesn't sound that they should overstep their bounds and ask a question that's almost inappropriate. But let's continue the storyline a little bit. And one of the Malachim says, next year... At this time, Sarah will have a child. Sarah is on the other side of the tent, overhears the conversation. But Tishak Sarah Bekirba, Sarah laughs inside, saying, How could it be? My husband is too old to have children. Hashem says to Avram, Why did Sarah laugh, saying that she is too old to have children? Now Rashi points out that's not what Sarah said. Sarah laughs, saying, that her husband is too old to have children. Yet when Hashem told it over, Hashem changed it. And Hashem said, why did Sarah laugh saying that she is too old? And Rashi points out, Shina, Kosov, Hashem changed. Because of Shalom. The Allah is, you're allowed to lie for Shalom, bias for peace. Hashem was Mishana, Hashem, excuse my expression, lied for peace. I heard my Rebbe, the Shiva Zatal, ask a very powerful question on this Rashi. And when you lie for Shalom Bayes, it's because there's going to be a fight, or potentially a real issue. Avram Avinu was not brought up in a juvenile-centered culture. He was usually proud of his accomplishments. He was a man who used every moment of his life, and surely every year in his life, to tremendous benefit, to tremendous greatness. And not just that, he's not that old. He's going to live another 75 years. So let's imagine for a minute that he heard the words... That Sarah said he's too old to have children. Ay Sarah calls me an old man. I don't think he would have broken apart. I don't think he would have lost it. I don't even think he would have 
it wouldn't have bothered him. Ask the Rashiva, why then did Hashem have to change? <clears throat> why did Hashem change? Shina Hashem didn't want Avram to hear the words that Sarah said that he's too old. So question one is, why did the Malachim feel they had to make him more beloved? <clears throat> question two is, why did Hashem have to change the words so that Avram shouldn't hear that his wife said that she is too old? Okay, so let's see if we can understand the answer to these questions. And, and to do that, let me share with you an observation. It is my firm belief that not a single marriage should work. If you study the institution of marriage and study men and women and study the complexity of it, I think you'll agree that not a single marriage should work. Let me explain to you what I mean. If you have a successful business, I have good advice for you. Hire talent. If you need help in accounting, if you need help in sales and help in marketing, hire talent. Bring in whatever talent you need, but whatever you do, don't bring in a partner. Why? Because almost every partnership ends. It might be five years, it might be ten years, but almost every partnership ends, and typically it ends badly. He wants to take the company overseas. She feels domestic is the better way. He wants it to go this way. He wants to go that way. Ten years, five years, without, almost invariably, most partnership ends. And the only thing worse than taking in a partner is taking in a family member as a partner, because then when it ends, it's really sloppy. So here's the point. If you take two men who basically are aligned, ask them to share their 9 to 5, it's unlikely that they're going to last more than 5 years, 10 years, 20 years at the max. Because different people have different approaches, different ways, and even if they agree, and even if they're similar, rare it is that it lasts a long time. When you ask a man and a woman to get married, you're not asking them to share their 9 to 5. You're asking them to do everything they do together, from the time they get up in the morning till the time they go to sleep at night. That means how they raise the kids, how they dress, how they run the house, how they, which friends they keep and how they keep friends. If he's late, it reflects badly on him. If she bounces a check, he has to clean up the mess. You're asking them to mold together two lives, to live together in total peace and harmony, and if you think about it, it really shouldn't work. But if that doesn't trouble you, let's make the question far more deep. Men and women are different. But men and women are not topically different. They're not slightly different. Men and women are so different. They're different in the way they behave, they relate, they communicate, their interests, their desires. Men and women are so different that you would say they come from different species, different planets, but they are vastly different. Let me share with you an observation. Daniel Goldman, in his book Emotional Intelligence, writes about a study of public school children. They took a group of public school children at the age of three and asked the boys and the girls the following question. They asked the boys to name a best friend and they asked the girls to name their best friend. And here's what they found. 50% of the boys named a girl as his best friend and 50% of the girls named a boy as her best friend. Same group of children at the age of five, only 20% of the boys named a girl as his best friend, and only 20% of the girls named a boy as her best friend. Same group of children at the age of seven, not a single boy, zero, not a single boy named a girl as his best friend, and not a single girl named a boy as her best friend. And why is that? Because when children are two, three years of age in the juvenile stage, they, they're similar. They play the same sort of way. They play together nicely. 
<clears throat> but as they grow older, the boys begin playing with boys' toys, they begin playing rough and tumble games, <clears throat> the girls begin playing with dolls and house, and they play their type of games. By the time the groups are seven years of age, they're in such different worlds that they don't play together because they have nothing in common. And these differences don't become less. When they become nine, ten, eleven, the differences become far more exaggerated. And if you're not sure that I'm right, do a little sociological study. Go to a public school during recess, and you'll see the boys and girls sit in the same classes. Yet in recess, they play vastly different games, and typically they don't play together. The boys are playing rough and tumble games, and the girls are playing jump rope, hopscotch, whatever they're playing, but the two groups don't mix. Why? Because by and large, they're into different things, have different interests, different desires, and different ways of communicating, and they share very little in common. But here's the point. As the boys and the girls grow older, the differences don't become less. At 12, at 13, at 17, at 19, the differences become far, far greater. And if you take a young man and a young woman at 20, 21, 22 years of age, what you find is they're in vastly different worlds, and different interests, different things they desire, different things they talk about, different ways of communicating, different things they communicate. And as they get older, the differences don't become lessened. So here's the observation. You take a chassan and a kala, each one brought up in their own home, with their own way of doing things, with their own idiosyncrasies, and their own family style. You then bring them together at a fully developed age, when they each have formed their own personality, and you have opposite in nature, the genders are vastly different, you <clears throat> introduce them for a few short dates, you break a glass, mazel tov, and you expect them to live together in peace and harmony for forever. And if you think about it, not a single marriage should succeed. Every marriage should end, and very badly. Now, obviously that's not what Hashem wants. And Hashem wants marriages to succeed. And therefore Hashem created a number of tools to help a marriage be successful. The first tool is something called infatuation. Infatuation is that glassy-eyed look he gets in his eyes. It's that faraway look that she gets. Woo! It's kind of like a capsule. It goes off in the chest. The violins are playing, the songs are singing, and each of them are in a vastly different way of thinking and a vastly different way of looking at each other. Now, it's interesting because scientists now measure the neurotransmitters. They measure the dopamine, the serotonin, the adrenaline, and they find that a couple in that state of infatuation, when they get that glassy eye look, the changes in the neurotransmitters are similar to cocaine use. The couple are high. He's perfect. She's great. And they'll be acting as people very different than they really are. It's kind of a blend of mania, dementia, obsession. And you'll find them very, very different. Their normal shura sasecha, their discerning intellect, is definitely off. I'll share with you an interesting example. My own wife is one of the sharpest people I know. When we were first engaged, I heard her on the phone and it sounded something like this. Listen, I know no one's perfect. I, I know Kim, but I'm telling you, I'm telling you, he's perfect. Now, I overheard this. I wasn't going to be the one to tell her this, but I knew that she was in for a rude awakening. But why did she think that? And because in that state of infatuation, there's a sense of, he's perfect, she's perfect. And this is a very interesting state. Because infatuation was created for a very specific reason, to allow a couple to begin the process but infatuation has a shelf life. It ends. And as a matter of fact, it's six months after the wedding, maybe a year after the wedding, whether he or she, sometimes both, 
wake up and they say the words, oh my goodness, oh my gosh, I made the biggest mistake in my life, I married the wrong one. And it's true they're making a mistake, not that they married the wrong one, and the mistake they're making is the infatuation wore off, and that's when it's time to work on the love in the marriage, because infatuation has a shelf life. Hashem created an infatuation to allow a couple to begin the process of molding their lives together. If at that point they begin working on the love and create a real bond of love, they can have a successful, beautiful marriage. But if they assume that infatuation is meant to last forever, and they're making the first really dumb mistake that very smart couples make. Because infatuation has a shelf life. It's sort of like the sulfur on a kitchen match. When you strike the match, the sulfur flames up, but then the wood's supposed to catch. Infatuation teaches you how to act. It teaches you how to regard each other. But then the real work in the marriage begins, and if a couple doesn't work on building the bond of love, they'll find themselves in very difficult difficult straits. And that is the first really dumb mistake that very smart couples make. They mistake infatuation for love. Love is essential for a marriage. Infatuation is a temporary fix. It allows you to start, but it wears off. Six months, a year, but then it's gone. And when they wake up and say, oh my goodness, I made the biggest mistake in my life, they're right, they're making a mistake. But not that they married the wrong one, they mistook infatuation for love, and they totally missed the boat. Because infatuation is temporary, infatuation blinds you, love doesn't blind. Love binds, but infatuation blinds you. And when you wake up and realize this person has flaws, and you wake up that this person is not perfect, that's when you work on the giving, the loving, the real bond of connection, and if you do that, you're successful. If not, you find yourself in a very difficult state. But let's move on. That's mistake number one. Let's move on to mistake number two. If I were to ask you, what is the biggest cause of divorce today? What is the biggest cause? Biggest cause. So most people will give you a list. They'll tell you it's children, money, religion, in-laws. They'll give you a list of reasons. I'd like to share with you that's not true. I don't believe any of those are the major cause of divorce today. The major cause of divorce today is fighting. Fighting. Well, come on, Rabbi, of course, but they're fighting about the children, the money, and the religion, and the in-laws, right? Nope, not true at all. It's never the issues. It's how the couple deal with the issues. If there's a bond of love, if there's respect, if they're dealing with this together, my way, your way, we find a way. But the minute that bond of love starts to disintegrate then they're in deep trouble. The cause of divorce is never the issues. It's how the couple deals with the issues. And I'll show you an interesting observation. 70% of long-standing successful marriages have at least one irreconcilable difference. An irreconcilable difference means a difference that can't be reconciled. He has a business in Manhattan. She has severe allergies and needs to live in San Diego. Chicago doesn't cut it for either of them. He wants to bring up the kids in a Hasidish way, and she wants a Litvish approach. You can't send the kids with long curly payas on one side to yeshiva. An irreconcilable difference means there is no conciliation, there's no pshara. 70% of successful long-standing marriages have at least one or more irreconcilable differences. How could they be successfully married? The answer is, if there's a bond of love and respect in the marriage, you find a way. But if that bond of love starts to wane, it's all over. The climate of the relationship is the single greatest criteria for a successful marriage. You see, Hollywood got it 100% right, except backwards. In the world of Hollywood, we fall in love, so we get married. 
We fall out of love, so we get unmarried. From a Torah perspective, when you get married, love has nothing to do with it. I don't marry this person because I love this person. I marry this person because I believe that Hashem brought me to this person because this is my Basharat, this is the right one for me. And in that decision-making process, love has nothing to do with it. But, if you don't begin building a very strong bond of love in your marriage, and you don't maintain it, and you don't constantly work on it, you're going to find yourself very distant, very apart, and your marriage is going to be very, very difficult. We don't marry for love, but love is the glue of a successful marriage. And if you'd like to know the answer to these Rashi's, I believe that's exactly what Rashi's saying. As great as Sarah and Avram's marriage was, the Malachim felt it could be more. As much as Avram loved Sarah, they wanted to add to it. To make her more beloved, you gave us food, you gave us something we want to give back to you. They wanted to increase the love. And I heard my Rebbe, the Shiva Zatzal, explain that's why Hashem changed. Because even though Avram would not have gone to pieces, he would not have been, oh my goodness, Sarah called me an old man but it would have made a scratch, maybe the slightest little scratch in a perfect marriage, and Hashem feels it's worthy to lie, because Shalom Bayes is Kaddush, is holy, and the bond of love is the glue. The bond of love is the connection that's the glue, and any slight little tarnish in it is worth for Hashem to lie, and that's what the Malachim are doing, because this is the essence of a successful marriage. If there's a bond of love and a connection, the couple flourishes, if not, they're in very, very difficult straits. Okay, now, I get the phone call. And I get these phone calls all the time, so I'll let you in on the typical phone call. It sounds something like this. Rabbi Schaefer, thank you very much for taking the call. Um, it's, I, I want to speak to you about my husband. Okay, what, what's doing? Well, um, I respect him. He's, he's a tamachachum. He's responsible. He's a good father. He spends time with the kids. I say, uh, so far it sounds pretty good. What's the problem? Well, the problem is, the problem is, I don't love him. I don't love him. So I ask her, tell me, how long are you married? About 10 years. How many children do you have? About five. Okay, so what do you do? What do you do when you get the phone call and the woman says, he's a great guy, responsible, he learned, everything's great, except I don't love him. So I'll tell you what I do. I ask the loaded question. I say, madam, tell me, last month, how many times did you and your husband go out? But I don't mean go out to a wedding or by mitzvah to your mother-in-law. I mean, how many times last month did you and your husband go out as a couple to bond, to connect, to spend time together? The answer is, we didn't. Okay. The month before that, we didn't. Okay. The month before that, I stopped by about 8 or 10 because I know what the answer is going to be. And I'll say to her one simple observation. If you're not going to spend time together, if you're not going to work on the bond of connection, if you're not going to date your spouse, guess what? You're going to drift apart, you're going to be in different worlds, and this is the second really dumb mistake that very smart couples make. They started out great, they had a good connection, the infatuation was there, maybe even in the beginning they had a good bond of love. But if you don't spend time together, if you don't work on the bond of love, if you don't do all the things that a couple in love is supposed to do, and that means the constant emails and texts and little gifts and notes, and certainly date night once a week, and even mini vacations, if you're not going to do all the things that a couple in love need to do to maintain and foster that bond of love, you're going to drift apart. And I cannot tell you how many couples suffer from this really dumb mistake. Everything is perfect. They're perfectly aligned. Everything is right on target. And yet they're in different worlds. And so many times I'll say to a couple, 
if you're not going to connect romantically, you're not going to be one unit. But Rabbi, what do you mean? We share the same values, and we talk about the kids, and and, and all we we all we we're concerned about is our family. That is wonderful. That is great. But that doesn't mean you're connected as a couple, and you have to spend time as a couple. And you have to continue to foster that connection. And if you're not going to date, if you're not going to work on the romantic love, if you're not going to foster that love, guess what? You're going to drift apart. And this is so easy to change. And as easy to change as it is, I cannot tell you the pushback I get. Rabbi, you crazy go out once a week? First of all, who can afford the babysitter? <clears throat> My husband's so busy, he started a new job. I, Come on, we, we can't. And, and it's amazing the pushback that I get. And I have only one answer to the pushback. You're right. It's expensive. And you're right, it takes a lot of time. But <clears throat> tell me, what does it cost for a divorce lawyer and alim- alimony? And uh, talk about time management. How about two homes? Uh, running two homes, is that time efficient? It's a lot cheaper, <clears throat> a lot more time efficient to work on your marriage, keep the bond going, and it's a lot more pleasant than the alternative. I'm not telling you a couple that you're going to get divorced if you're not going out once a week, but I am telling you that if you're not working on the bond of connection, you're going to drift apart. It requires constant infusion of energy. And that's what Rashi is telling us. The Malachim felt he had to add to it. Why? Because as great as they were, as close as they were, you have to constantly add to it. You have to constantly help. And if mistake number one is mistaking infatuation for love, mistake number two is forgetting to work on the love in the marriage. And if you're not going to do that, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to be happily married. Okay, but let's continue. Uh, mistake number three. Are you ready for this one? Okay. Somewhere around year two, many couples, sometimes he, sometimes she, and again, a lot of times both, they start this, like, comparing thing. And they realize that my husband's good. He's a good guy. I'm not saying not, but uh, there are people who are smarter and kinder, maybe nicer, maybe more handsome, maybe learn better, make more money. And they realize that, you know, maybe I settled. You know, I, I'm, I'm married. I'm not, I'm not unhappily married, but I could have done better. I could have done better. Okay. Would you like to know the answer to the I could have done better? You're absolutely correct. I am sure that you could have done better. You could have married someone smarter or nicer or better looking or or wealthier, you probably could. But the question I'd like to ask you is, would you be happier? And if you'd like to understand what I'm saying, I'll make it very clear. Imagine your sister's wedding is coming up in two months, and you shop, and you shop, you find the perfect dress. It's beautiful, it's gorgeous, it's sneers, it's up, perfect, everything's good. And you're all set to go. Only one problem, you need a new pair of shoes for the dress. <clears throat> you look, and you look, you can't find a thing. You search, and you search, shop, and shop, Nothing. And finally, a week before the wedding, you're desperate. You go into DS, DSW, and they're on the clearance rack. Oh, my goodness, they're gorgeous. They're so fashionable. And the, the workers, they're, they're, they're fantastic. And they're on sale, half price. Oh, my goodness. Only one problem. They're two sizes too small. I can't pass this up. They're the perfect shoe. You take them home. <clears throat> you dance at your sister's wedding for two hours. And that night, you take the shoes off, and you discover that your feet are killing you. Because the leather could be fine. The workmanship could be perfect, but if the shoe doesn't fit, it's going to hurt. You could have married somebody smarter or richer or taller. You married the one that Hashem deemed appropriate for you. And Hashem is the matchmaker. And understanding what a couple needs to match together properly is far from simple. And anyone who thinks they know marriages, I'll bring them into my office. When I get the couple in, 
And everyone assumes it must be they have bad midos. It must be he's a creep, but she's a, a spender. And you'll find invariably they're nice people. They're good people. They're solid citizens. Nothing wrong, yet they're fighting. But they have good midos, and they get along with everybody else. And when you realize that a successful marriage is a lot more complex than you think it is, you realize that Hashem is the matchmaker. And before you go looking around and comparing, you better realize that Hashem is the one who brought you to this person. The really dumb mistake number three that very smart couples make is thinking, I could have done better. I could have done better. Why did I settle? You could have done better. You could have chosen someone smarter or taller, but you would not have been happier. Because Hashem knows your nature, Hashem knows your temperament, Hashem knows your inclination, and Hashem knows what's needed in the opposite gender, where your weaknesses are perfectly matched to her strengths, her strengths are perfectly matched to your weaknesses, and you blend together perfectly. It may not be the best guy in Lakewood, it may not be the smartest guy in North America, but it's the right one for you. And really dumb mistake number three is thinking that I could do better. Okay, but let's move along. I want to share with you two scenes. And I'm going to ask you what the difference between these two scenes are. Scene number one. A young woman's on this side, a young man's on the other side. They're walking down the street. He trips, and she says, Oy vey! Oy, are you okay? That's scene one. Okay. Same couple, same street. They're walking down the street. He trips, and her response is, Klutz! What's wrong with you? You can't even walk down the street? What's the difference between scene number one and scene number two? So, scene number one is when they're chasen and kala. Scene number two is when they're married already four years. And this is really dumb mistake number four. Forgetting that the respect in the marriage is something you have to constantly work on. As much as love is the glue of a marriage, respect has to be there as well. And if you're not going to work on the love in the marriage, you're going to drift apart. And if you're not going to work on the respect in the marriage, you're also going to find it very difficult to be happily married. John Gutman, who is a student of marriages, he's a psychologist who has studied, he's done a tremendous amount of marriage research, and he has done a very interesting study. He'll take two, a couple, a husband and wife, put them in chairs, and ask them to have a conversation. And he monitors everything, their pulse rate, their respiration, he videotapes it, and then he asks the husband to switch for another man, and he asks them to talk about certain subjects. They don't ask the wife to move. And they'll swap out mates back and forth. And here's what he's found. He's found that invariably, young married or married for a long time, couples are far less polite to each other than they are to total strangers. They're far less polite when they're talking to each, each other than if a stranger is introduced. Not only that, they're far more likely to agree with a stranger's opinion than their spouse's opinion. And if they argue, they'll argue far less vehemently and far less aggressively with a total stranger than they would with somebody else. And it seems to be a given. Outside, we're very well behaved. We're very polite. But somehow, when we get behind the doors of our own house, somehow we put down our guard, put down our hair, and gone as a please and a thank you. And before you know it, respect is down the tubes. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard people speak to each other in ways that I, I get scared. Moshe, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <clears throat> Rocky, that, that's absurd. That's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Wait, are you talking to somebody you hate? This is your spouse, the one you love, the one you're bonded to. And if you hear the way couples speak to each other, sometimes it makes my hair stand on end. 
as much as you have to work on the love in the marriage, you have to work on respect. And this is really dumb mistake number four, letting the respect wane. You have to work on it, you have to focus on it, and it requires constant work. And let me share with you a very, very important understanding. You see, the marriage, the love in the marriage is the glue. But there are three parts to a successful marriage. Number one, commitment. The first pillar of a successful marriage is the commitment. I know that Hashem chose for me the right one, and I'm committed to this union. Number two, pillar number two is the love, the relationship. There's a bond of love and connection. You guys are in a good state. But it's number three, the third pillar that gives most couples the most difficulty, and that's learning to live together. You see, many couples are committed to this union, and they actually do love each other, but they don't know how to live together. And the first thing that goes out the window is the respect, and then before you know it, many other things follow suit. Hashem gave us many tools for a successful marriage, but you have to use the tools properly. And let me share with you one of the fastest ways to destroy any marriage. Elizabeth Newton is a psychologist, and she earned a Ph.D. from Stanford University for a very interesting experiment. She created two groups, and she called one group the tappers and the other groups the listeners. The tappers' job it was to tap out a song. The listeners' job was to guess the song. And she made a list of about 50 well-known songs, Happy Birthday, Star Spangled Banner, and she would ask the tapper to tap out the beat of the song, and then the listener would guess what the song is. Okay, now here's what she found. When she did hundreds and hundreds of groups of people, when the tapper would tap out the song, only 2.5% of the listeners were able to guess the sound, were able to guess the song. And you can imagine why. When you tap out a beat, it's hard to know what song it's from. Now, she didn't earn a Ph.D. for realizing that most of the listeners aren't going to be able to guess what song it is. She earned a Ph.D. because she asked the tappers to guess the odds of the listener getting the song right. And person after person, when they were tapping out the song, said at least 50%, at least, for sure, 50%. In fact, you watch videotapes, and the tapper taps out the song, and the listener doesn't guess. The the tapper goes, what's wrong? How could you not guess it? But do you know why? Because when you tap out a song, you can't help but play it in your mind. And when you play it in your mind, it's so... Uh, how can you not get it? Don't, don't you hear it? <laughs> how could you not get that? That's the Star Spangled Bat. How did you not hear it? <clears throat> My friends, this is one of the greatest yesodos for any relationship. I have certain understandings. I have a certain perspective, but you may not share that perspective. I may know certain things, but you may not be aware of it. And any machlokas, any fight that you'll ever get into with anyone in the world invariably has some element of this. Where I assume, of course, he knows this. Of course, she's aware of this. And nevertheless, she did X, Y, and Z. It's obvious that she's just doing it to torment me. She's mean, she's nasty, she's callous. Any fight, any machlokas in any relationship has an element of this and we become mind-blind, we assume if I know it, if I hear the music in my brain, you hear it also. And this, I believe, is one of the great foundational principles for a successful marriage. Let me share with you what I mean. I'll share with you a small example, then a much larger example. Shabbos morning, I typically get up very early, and that's when the house is quiet, I learn, it's a machaya. And later on in the morning, I'll bring my wife a coffee in bed. She likes to have a coffee in bed, 
And I do this, we've been doing this routine for de- decades now. We're married almost 35 years. In any case, <clears throat> to this day, as I open the refrigerator, I have to stop because I reach for the creamer and I'm about to put the creamer into the milk and I have to stop because my wife doesn't like creamer. But it tastes so much better. She likes it with skim milk. But it's so much better, at least 4% milk. I mean, it doesn't even turn the coffee white. That we can't. And to this day, I have to resist and not take at least the 4% because my wife likes skim milk. And you understand what's going on here? What's going on here is I know that coffee tastes so much better with full-fat milk or full-fat cream because it just tastes better. And I want to give my wife the best. So I want to give... The problem is she doesn't like it that way. And understanding that my likes and my perspective is my likes and my perspectives, but it doesn't mean my wife shares the same, is one of the great foundational principles of a successful marriage. And let me share with you a much bigger version of this concept. A young man's married about six months, and he comes home at night, he's learning kolo, 6.30, he's about to put his key into the apartment door, and he says to himself, Ah, chaz de Hashem, I married such a grounded young woman, she's so sober and so thought out and so intelligent, Ah, chaz de Hashem, I didn't get one of those flighty dames, Ah, so happy. Puts the key into his apartment door, opens the door, and there he sees his wife on the chair. <laughs> What is it, dear? What is it? There, there. What, what, what? There. What, what is it? There. What? A, a, a cockroach. A, a cockroach. A, a what? A cockroach. Kill it, please. He looks, <clears throat> sees a cockroach on the floor, walks over, <clears throat> stomps in it, and says, uh, you can come down now, dear. Huh. Not flighty, huh? <clears throat> okay, he doesn't think much about it. Time passes well. Two weeks later, he's in the base medrash. He doesn't even take a cell phone into the base medrash. He's a super masmid. He's learning. He's learning. Somebody brings the phone. Listen, the David, you know, your wife's on the phone. Something's wrong. Picks up the phone. David, whoa, 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 what is it? Please, please come home. What? 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 There, there, there are two of them. Please come home. I don't believe it. She wants me to leave the base medrash. She wants me to stop learning to kill two stupid bugs. Is she kidding me? He hangs up the phone and gets into his car, drives the steam coming out of his ears. I can't believe this woman. He takes his key out, opens the apartment door, and there she's on the chair. He walks over, scrunch, scrunch. I hope you're satisfied. Turns around, heads right back to his car, drives right back to the yeshiva. Here's the question. Who was right? Who was right? Was she right? After all, she was terrified of the bugs, and she called her husband to save her. Was he right? After all, come on, Bittel Torah for uh, two stupid bugs. Who was right? Okay, and so the answer to that question is, who was right is the worst question you could ask. Who is right is the wrong question. Who is right is a good question in a court of law, maybe a divorce court, but who is right is not a question to ask in a marriage. A far more beneficial, far more helpful question to ask is, what was going on in their inner worlds? Now, I don't know why it is, but for some reason, many young women I know are afraid of bugs. I have Chazdeh Hashem, I have four daughters and two sons. My girls are, by and large, terrified of bugs, and the boys aren't. In fact, when the girls were little, they would call one of the baby brothers in and just have to make sure he didn't eat the bug. But, you know, they were afraid of bugs and boys. I don't know why it is, but that's sort of a reality. So here's the point. What he didn't understand is that she was really terrified, not just faking it, not just carrying on. She was really scared. And if you'd like to sort of play it out, let's imagine the scene a little bit differently. Let's imagine it was he home in the apartment. 
And it wasn't two cockroaches, but imagine it was two German shepherds. Where would he be? He would not be up on a chair. He'd be out the window, down the fire escape, down the street, because German shepherds are scary. And his mistake was he used his experience to judge his wife. My experience is the way I experience things. He's not afraid of bugs. But my experience doesn't define reality. My experience is my experience. And if I experience that this isn't scary, but my spouse feels it is, well, guess what? And the fifth really dumb mistake that very smart couples make is where they allow their experience to define reality. The way I experience things, the way I think about things, is the way I think about things. But that doesn't mean my spouse does the same. And this is something that plagues marriages throughout history, and almost in every marriage has some element of this. <clears throat> I know the normal way, I know the right way, and I assume you know it as well. And this idea where my experience defines reality is something that plagues every marriage. As a matter of fact, I'd like to share with you a little marriage advice. Would you like to know the two most important words in a marriage? I would ask you to write them down. <clears throat> write down the two most important words in a marriage. So many people say, um, I love you for the three words. Um, <clears throat> I, I was, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, yes, dear. How high? Um, <clears throat> um, I was wrong. By the way, I was wrong are the most difficult words. I was, I wasn't right. I mean, I was, okay. But even I was wrong and even I'm sorry are not the most important words in a marriage. I believe the most important words in a marriage are the words, that's strange. I'll explain to you what I mean. <clears throat> when he came home, had he seen his wife up on the chair and said, that's strange, my wife is normally a sober, <clears throat> intelligent girl, why would she be up on the chair? She's not a flighty date. Why is she doing that? That's strange. You see, when you say the words, that's strange, you open yourself up to the scientific curiosity and you begin to discover the inner world of your spouse. Let me caution you. You say the words to yourself, not to your spouse. Had he said the words, that's strange, <clears throat> why would my wife call me home from a yeshiva? She's machshiv Torah as much as I am. She's working so I could learn. Why would she do it? That's strange. When you say the words, that's strange, <clears throat> my normal, considerate husband is acting in a way that's cruel and callous. Why would he be doing it? When you say the words, that's strange, you open yourself up to begin discovering the inner world of your spouse. And you stop the mind blindness, you stop using your experience to define reality, and I believe that these are the most important words in your marriage. The other words are important too, but these are far more important. And now we are ready to understand what this does for us. Again, five mistakes. Number one, infatuation has a shelf life. Mistake infatuation for real love. Mistake number two is forgetting to work on the love. Mistake number three is thinking, I could have done better. Really dumb mistake number four is stopping to work on the respect. And really dumb mistake number five is thinking that my experience defines reality. Now, would you like to know what this has to do with us in the going out process? I'd like to share with you it has everything. Let's begin with the following. I cannot tell you how many times I've had a young man or young woman who say the words, I, yeah, the dates are going very well. I look forward to the dates. I enjoy our company. But I don't know, I just, I'm not feeling it. So I'll ask him, how many times have you gone out? Eight times, ten times, very nice. And how long are the dates? Six, seven, eight hours, very good. Tell me something, do you talk to your, your friends in yeshiva for eight hours? No, it's true. I, I mean, the conversations go, and I look forward to the date, but it just, um, I'm not feeling it. And, and if I'm not infatuated, how could I get engaged? Because I, I'm, not, I'm just not feeling it. 
So let me share with you. I have dealt with, again, hundreds and hundreds of couples. Many couples are infatuated. Many couples are not. And I find almost no correlation between the couples who are infatuated and successful marriages versus the other. You see, love in the marriage is not infatuation grown up. Infatuation has a shelf life. Infatuation is a temporary state. The neurochemicals go off in the brain, the serotonin and the dopamine. It's like cocaine use. But after six months, after a year, it's gone. And then if you work on the love in the marriage, life is beautiful. But if you don't work on the love in the marriage, you're distant, you're apart, and before you know it, you're in different worlds. You see, love in the marriage is not infatuation growing up. And if you're not infatuated, that doesn't mean you're going to be in a loveless marriage. And the opposite, if you are infatuated, it doesn't mean you're going to have a lot of love in your marriage. Because infatuation is given for a particular purpose. Hashem created it to allow a couple to begin the process. Some couples have a lot of it, some have a little, some have none. If you got it, use it. But by the way, the couples that get me the most nervous are the ones who are the most infatuated. Because when you get that glassy eye looked, and wow, he's perfect, I know that your sure saseichel, your normal discerning intellect, is shut off. You're blinded. You're not seeing straight. And you're going to wake up in six months or a year, and you're going to say the words, Oh my goodness, I didn't know him. Every couple says it. Every couple is aware of it. The question is, how much of a shock is it? And if your normal sense of seichel is off, if your brain is shut off, if you're under the drug of infatuation, and you're not even paying attention. So if you think that you need to be infatuated, it has to be rockets on the 4th of July, or you're not ready to get engaged, I'd like to share with you, I don't believe it's true. Because love in the marriage is not infatuation growing up. What you're looking for is compatibility. And you're looking for the right one. And let me deal with another common mistake that I find often young people, when they're going out, deal with. I'm just, I'm not attracted. I mean, he, you know, she's attractive. She's good looking. But I, they're much prettier girls. I'm, I'm just not that attracted. Okay. Now, how do you expect a guy to get married? He doesn't think she's the most beautiful woman in the world. So, let me share with you a very interesting observation. There are many tools that Hashem created to allow a couple to bond. One of them is attraction. Another one is romance. Another is respect. Another is appreciation. Another is friendship. Another is physical touch. Another is intimacy. There are quite a number of tools that will allow a couple to bond. Attraction is but one of them. And if you think she's the most beautiful thing in the world, that's very nice, but that's but one tool. And by the way, many guys and many women also can feel they married a very attractive person, but in a very short amount of time, they no longer like them. And that attraction suddenly is very, very ugly. Attraction is important. If a man's not attracted to his wife, the wife isn't attracted to the husband, it's an issue. You can't ignore it, but it's only but one of many, many tools, and it's certainly not the biggest one. I could have done better. Why should I settle? You know, he's a good guy. I like him. We've been going out for eight dates, ten dates, and the conversations are going, and I enjoy his company, and, and it's going well, and I'm, yeah, and I'm attracted. And, but I don't know. I, I could do better. I could marry somebody uh, richer or smarter or taller or learns better or more from. I, what? Rabbi, you want me to settle? You want me to just to settle? And I have one simple answer. Yes. I want you to settle for the right one the one that Hashem designed for you, the one that Hashem deemed appropriate for you. But, but how do I know? How do I know? I'll share with you how you know. There are two parts to this equation. There's the Basher test and the paper test. Each has their role. And the paper test is done before the date, hopefully before you even meet. 
you're on paper, are you two guys aligned? Are you looking to raise the same sort of family? Are you looking to build the same kind of home? That doesn't mean in exact nuances, but it means in big, broad brushstrokes, are you guys looking for the same things in life? Number two on the paper test, is there any skeletons in the closet? Does he have serious issues that you're not aware of or you're not going to find out on the date? Whether it's emotional instability, psychological issues, things that you will be able to hide from the date. You take the paper test, you speak to people, you look around, and you find out, are you looking for the same things in life? Is he a wholesome, well-developed person? If he passes the paper test, then you take the Bashar test. What's the Bashar test? The Bashar test is you go out. And what you're looking for is just a sort of commonality. Just You look forward to the dates, the conversation sort of flow. There's just a comfortable sort of sense. It is not rockets on the 4th of July. It's not stars and woo. If you've gone out a number of times, a number of times, and you look forward to the dates, and you want to be with that person, and it just sort of flows, that's exactly the Bashar test. You passed. That's it. But how do I know? How do I? You will never know. I once had a fellow at his chasana call me up and say, maybe she's not my bashert. This was after about seven or eight times he had called me already and went through the process. And I told him, you know how you know she's your bashert? When you walk your grandchildren down the aisle. But if you'd like to understand what you need to be happy, you have to trust your creator. You take the paper test, you take the bashert test, and then you say the words, am I certain? No. But it sure does look like it. I checked him out. It seems to be on paper he's right in the right line. He's a wholesome, healthy person, and I enjoy his company. The dates flow. I look forward to it. And that's when you close your eyes and you take that deep leap of faith. You say the words, I didn't create the world, and I don't really know what I need. I don't know what I need two days from now. I don't know what I need ten weeks from now. I don't really understand my nature. I don't understand the opposite gender. I really don't understand marriage, but more than anything, I don't know where I need to be ten years from now. Anyone who walks into a dating situation and says, I know what I need. I know what I need. I need someone extrovert, introvert. I need someone this type of sense of humor. This I have one simple question to ask. You know exactly what you need, right? Yeah, good. And you know exactly your emotional temperament, your inclinations, and you also know across the gender divide what will... Pro- okay, I got all that. Let me ask you a very simple question. Do you know where you're going to be 20 years from now? Do you know where you're going to be 30 years from now? You see, when you get married, hopefully it's for life. But life means 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. How do you know what's going to interest you in 35 years? How do you know what kind of person you're going to develop into? And how do you know how, what he's going to develop into? And if you begin to think, you realize there are certain jobs that are better left to Hashem. I don't know what I need. I don't know what I need 20 years from now. I don't, need, I don't know what I need 35 years from now. I don't know what I need now. And therefore, I leave this one up to my Creator. Forty days before you were born, Hashem said, Bito, Shaploni, Laploni. Hashem determined the right one, the perfect one, the perfect match. May not be the tallest guy, may not be the most handsome guy, may not be the smartest guy, but he's the perfect match for you. Could you have done better? You probably could have. But you would not have been happier. It's like buying the pair of shoes that are too small. And I believe what this Rashi shares with us is a foundational principle. The glue to a marriage is love. Infatuation is a coming stage. It happens. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. But it's gone with the wind. Six months, a year, and then it's gone. And one of the really dumb mistakes that many smart couples make is they mistake infatuation for love, but it's not. 
<clears throat> real love comes from giving, from working, from really being dedicated to this person, and that's the <clears throat> ingredient to a successful marriage. A successful marriage requires commitment, it requires love, and it requires learning to live together. <clears throat> but learning to live together means you have to not just work on the love, you have to work on the respect. You have to work on recognizing that my nature is different than my spouse's. You have to open yourself up to the emotional world of your spouse. You have to say that's strange on a regular basis, not to your spouse, to yourself. And you study the nature of your spouse. You study who they are. You learn their needs. And then you're able to meet their needs. You're able to understand them. And you create a beautiful marriage. When you do this, Hashem helps. What Rashi's teaching us is that marriages are either ever-increasing or going down. And Malachim wanted to add to the Shalom bias by making her more beloved. Hashem didn't want even a scratch, the slightest scratch in that love, because that's how holy Shalom bias is, and I think that is a tremendous lesson. And I'd like to close with one story that I think well encapsulates what a marriage is supposed to be. My Rebbe, Shiva Zatzal, I learned the Chavetz Chaim, was older than his Rebetzin, and everyone knew that uh, what to expect, that the Rishiva Zatzal would pass away before the Rebetzin. Rishiva was sickly for many years, but that's not what happened. <clears throat> the Rebetzin died first. And the Rishiva got up to say, has been to say a funeral, to edit, at the funeral of his wife, he said a, a eulogy. And he began by saying, everything we did, we did together. We built the Yeshiva together. We built the Talmudim together. <clears throat> we went to Eretz Stroll together. Everything we did, we did together. I didn't have to worry about my food. She worried about it more than me. I didn't have to worry about my medicine. She worried about it more than me. Everything we did, we did together. He must have said that expression 12, maybe 14 times. And then he said these words. I said a hespid for my father. I said a eulogy for my father. I said a hespid for my mother. I cannot say a hespid for my wife. If I say a hespid for my wife, it's like saying a hespid about myself. I can't do it. And he sat down. And with those words, he defined a marriage. One unit, bonded, connected. One unit together. It takes an awful lot of work. It takes understanding what a marriage is about. It surely takes the right one. Not the one that I think I need. The one that Hashem knows far better than I what I need. You find the right one. You take the plunge. And then you work very diligently on the marriage. You do all the things you need to do. And Hashem helps. And you get to that stage. It's not all a walk in the park. There are going to be ups and downs, but you work on it, you work on it. Shem helps, and you have a beautiful, beautiful marriage. And I want to just mention one more thing. I have to plug this book. Not only did I write the book, but I, I, I cannot tell you how many people have told me the book is phenomenal, the book is great. I wanted to write the book 23 years, I wanted to write it 35 years ago. But I think specifically for this audience, this book is very, very recommended. And why? Because I was a high school rebbe for 15 years. I would teach in 11th grade, 17-year-old boys, and I would talk to them about marriage. And I'd say, Rebbe, we're, not, we're 17 years old, what do you want from us? i say, yeah, and the time to learn about marriage is not when you're walking down the chuppah. But even more, if you're in the dating parsha, you have to know what you're looking for. The time to learn about marriage is now. The time to learn about marriage is when you work on it. And I, I'm doing my darndest to get this book out there. If you like a copy of the book, if you go to the schmooze.com, you can get the book. It's the same price as you get in the stores. The only advantage is that if you go to theshmooze.com, you'll get the audio book, the e-book, as well as the Marriage Transformation Boot Camp as a free bonus. So you go to theshmooze.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com. Uh, you go there, you'll see the book. You'll see on the top there's a banner uh, for the book. If you go there, again, you'll get the book. It's I think it's $25. But when you purchase the book online, the shipping is free, but you'll also get the e-book, 
the audio book and American Transformation Bootcamp, which is a six, uh, it's an online six, um, six-year course that I gave a number of years ago. It's all as a bonus with the purchase of the book. Please, I, I, I urge you, please check it out. At least go online, see it. You'll be able to look inside it and see what it's about. I think it'd be very valuable, very helpful. And now what I'd like to do is open the floor to questions. Um, please feel free to raise your hand. If you're brave, you raise your hand. If you're a little bit shy, you could type the question in, but I'd like to take questions uh, out, out loud first. So I'm going to open the floor now. And Sharona, you have the floor. Hello. Hi. Hi, how are you? Well, Hashem. Um, um, I have a question. I I was I got divorced, and um, and and how 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 can how how can I trust a guy if I more understand? Okay, so that's a very good question. Um, how can you trust a guy? How can you trust? It's a very fine question. You have to. You have to trust your Creator. You have to trust Hashem to to lead you to another person that you'll be happy with. Um, again, I highly I, I'm going to sound I'm going to sound like a broken record shortly, but I highly recommend that you read the ten really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make because I have found it invariably. I've dealt with I can't countless divorcing couples, and it's never one sided. Now, don't I'm not saying who's a but I, I am telling you that there's enough blame to go around, but more than anything, you want to know what a successful marriage needs, please read the book. Um, you trust your creator to find the right one for you, but you have to do your part. Your part is to do your part in the marriage, which is, again, <clears throat> to understand what a marriage needs, to understand gender differences, to understand what a relationship needs. So I highly recommend the book, and uh, and Davin and Hashem helps. Is it a good book? Is it a good book? Um, I think so. <laughs> I wish you much Hashem. Thank you, much Hashem. Thank you. Okay, um, okay. Rachel Golan, you have the floor. I think you do. I hope you do. Ask on mute. I think you do. Talking computer. Yes, it says you do. Sorry, actually, I didn't mean to ask a okay. question. I think I accidentally. Okay, that. no problem. I'm gonna. Okay, okay. Chaim Baruch Gatel, I believe you have the floor now. I hope you want to raise your hand, because you now have the floor. Yeah, I did. Thank you very much for this. It was a, a great talk, uh, so I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a couple of questions, actually. Um, first of all, I've seen you know a lot of focus, and uh, people focus on dating on personality. Um, you know, he's this type, she's that type, um, you know, diff- this kind of stuff, or worker, learner, or... Uh, um, you know, the size of the suit or those stuff. And your experience and, and seeing people married, do you think these stuff matter in a marriage? I think you said it doesn't. I just wanted to reiterate that. Right. I mean, so, you know, what you're looking for is the right one. What size the right one is, what exact shape, they're, What you, you don't know. What personality type, you don't know. What level, of, you, what you're looking for is the one that just seems to fit, meaning... I understand that Hashem created the perfect match for me. That perfect match may not be the way I've decided it should be. You see, to be honest with you, most people, when they go out, they they play the Mr. Potato Head game. You know the child's toy, the Mr. Potato Head? You get to design the eyes, the nose, the ears. 
most people sit back and they create their Mr. Potato Head. This is what I need, someone with this type of personality, this flavor, this type of... And they put together Mr. Potato Head, and then they go into the marketplace to find the one that's closest, and they can't find them. Hashem, why I can't find my Bashar? You're not looking for your Bashar. You're looking for your Mr. Potato Head, the one you formed in your mind, and you think you need, and guess what? You don't got it right. And the goal here is to look for the one that Hashem has determined that's right. How do I know which one it is? The answer is you take the paper test, on paper you align, then you take the Bashar test. The Bashar test is very intuitive. Does it go? Does it flow? Does it just seem to be right? But I know what I need. When you're married 30 years, we'll discuss whether you know what you need or not. But I know what I need means I've already made my Mr. Potato Head. Your job is not to know what you need. Your job is to find the right one. You take the paper test. And take the Bashar test. The Bashar test is, does it flow to the conversation? Do I look forward to the date? Does it just sort of seem to be right? That is the Bashar test. When both happen, you take the jump. Okay, and thank so, you very much. So, much, much uh, thank you for asking. Um, okay, I'm going to open the floor now to um, a question I see. Um, okay, I, if successful marriages have irreconcilable differences, when I'm meeting someone, what am I looking for? Is it generally comfortable... I'm sorry, if it's generally comfortable, but I see big differences, <clears throat> how do I know if the differences are too great? Do I work on accepting the differences the way a married couple would? So, <clears throat> really, what you're looking for more than anything is a commonality. Does it just sort of flow? I don't, you know, the differences are... are <clears throat> do, you, do you enjoy the person's company? Do you enjoy, you know, you talk about differences. When you discuss these differences, does it just seem to be the kind of conversation that goes the right way? Does it just seem to be enjoy the person's company? Now, obviously, if there are major life differences between you, you know, you want to learn for the next 10 years, and you want to live, uh, you only shop in Saks Fifth Avenue, we, we, have a, um, we have a disharmony there, and that's not going to work. So if you're finding big differences that really mean that you're in different parts of life, but again, I don't mean minor things, I, don't, I mean major differences, then that's a very serious issue. But assuming that, again, you pass the paper test, that basically you're looking for about the same sort of way of life, the same sort of lifestyle to bring up children, to bring up a house the same way, and then it just flows. The conversation flow, you enjoy the company, it just seems to go, that's exactly what you're looking for. You're looking for a very intuitive sense, a very instinctive sense. And by the way, another good book, The Ten Really Dumb Mistakes a Very Smart Couple Make, there's another good book that I recommend. It's called Finding and Keeping Your Soulmate. You can find it on Amazon. Um, I wrote that book maybe 10 years ago, Finding and Keeping Your Soulmate. And it's, it's really a guide for going out. It's, um, I don't know if it's more recommended than the 10 Really Dumb Mistakes because I think both are very key and both are very helpful. But I think you may find it also helpful and may find it very beneficial. All right, I'm going to call another person. Mindy, fine, you have the floor. Please go ahead. What is your question, sir? Sorry, can you hear me now? I can hear you. Yes, hi. Okay, awesome. Um, so I just wanted to say, um, I listened to Rabbi Sherman before I started dating, and the first thing he said is to drop the Mr. Potato Head list and drop the, the laundry list, okay. as he called it, which is really awesome. Um, <laughs> um, but the first question of any shot of his mouth is, what are you looking what for? What are you looking for? What are you looking for? There's only one person who answers that question right that I ever met. You know who that is? My daughter. She said, I'm looking for my Rashad. I said, cut that out. Come on, you're cheating. She said, no, that's what I'm looking for. I said, that's right. Uh, you're right. I mean, you have to come up with a list for the shot, and, you know, to, but what can I tell you? If you? As long as you remember what you're really looking for, and you're looking for your Bashar. You know, if it's tall, short, fat, or skinny, extroverted, introverted, not, 
I'm looking for the right one. What does she look like? What is, I don't know. That's what I'm looking for. But is there like any guideline? Because a lot of times that's like, yeah, okay, we need like something to go off of here. And okay. so I All have right. a general idea of what I'm going to do with my life. I mean, obviously I should have other plans, but. Okay, good. So <clears throat> there are things that I call filters. A filter means, let's say if you read 10 Shaduchim, and you know that you're the type of person who, you're, you're a very outgoing guy, and you feel more comfortable with an outgoing girl, you have every right to say, I prefer an outgoing girl, if there are two, but that's before you get to the date. Filters are things that you think are probably more likely to succeed. Someone who's X amount of intelligence, someone who has this type of personality, you could use filters before the date. Once you're on the date, no filters. All you're seeing is, does it go? Is it because you really don't know? You know, everyone. I know what I need, and it turns out you don't know what you need because knowing the inner chemistry of a, of, a, of a relationship and knowing across the gender divide what you need requires requires Shlomo Melech, requires really our Creator. So the answer is filters are good, and you could use them. And certainly, if you want to tell a shop what you're looking for, you know. I'm looking to live out of town, or I want to, you know, obviously if you're going to learn or not learn, work or not work, you know, obviously those are important because those are very basic differences. Uh, so and those are certainly important. And even filters, when I say filters, I mean more of fine-tuning things, you know, personality types, uh, you know, <clears throat> styles, um, you know, outgoing, introverted, etc. Those kind of things, filters, if there are more than one, you could use a filter to discern which is the right one to start with. But again, once you hit the date... No filters. Take the Bashar test. Okay, pleasure. Thank you. Okay, if you have a question, please feel free to raise your hand, um, or would type it in. I see a number of people have typed in questions. Um, okay, what are good ways to prepare for marriage when right before you started dating? So I'm going to sound like a broken record, but read the ten really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make. Again, I spent 15 years, I worked with hundreds of couples, and over and over I found patterns. People doing things that just, come on, stop doing that. Now, once you start the rut, and once you start the cycle, it's very hard to get out. But if you didn't start it yet, if you didn't make the mistake yet, you don't have to make the mistake. And I can't tell you how many times, I guarantee you read this book, and you're going to go, oh my goodness, now I understand. If you're not married, you'll get married, and six months later you're going to say, that's what he was talking about, now I get it. I almost guarantee if you're single and you read this book, you're going to say, nah, <laughs> can't be, no way, <laughs> he's making that stuff up. And then you get married and you go, oh my goodness, he was right. Now, why am I right? Not because I'm such a smart person, but because I've been there in the trenches Again, with hundreds and hundreds of couples, and I've seen it time after time after time, and after a while, even if you're not the brightest guy in the block, you begin to put the patterns together, and you begin to realize there's something going on here. So <clears throat> what do you do before to get ready for marriage? Buy the 10 really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make, and you go on the schmooze.com, you just click on it, just remember, it's spelled T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com, <clears throat> you'll click on the link over there. If you buy it online, you'll also get the free audiobook ebook and marriage transformation camp boot camp. You could also buy it in storm stores, but then it's it's more difficult to get the link. You have to send me an email and if we get in touch we'll I'll gladly send it to you as well. But again, online you get it as a free bonus. Um so that's my recommendation. Um okay. <clears throat> when dating, how do you know what's nerves versus issues when considering someone to marry? That is an excellent question. 
Um, this is something you must have someone that you talk to about. You cannot know this. In other words, I've dealt with many, many young people when they're going out. I'll give you one example. A certain fellow was going out and going out and going out and going out, and they broke up. And the second time, the same person, like maybe two years later, going out and going out and going out and going out, and he didn't know what to do. He didn't know if he could pull the trigger. So we went for a long drive. I think he drove me to Lakewood or something. It was a long drive. And I'm asking him, do you enjoy the company? Yes. Do you, but I don't know. I'm just not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. At a certain point, I said to him, you know something? What we need over here is we need Elior Novi. I can't know if really you like her, but there's something blocking you, or maybe you really don't feel it. I can't. What we need is we need Elior Novi here to tell us whether she's the right one or not. And he said these words. She is the right one, but I don't want to marry her. I said, oh, man. Oh, she is the right one, but I need someone. Okay, now, and that was a gross example, but it happens often where I need someone richer or taller, smarter, pretty, whatever it may be. <clears throat> but what really you're asking is a little bit more subtle. And that is a lot of times there's nervousness, anxiety. Let's be honest. This is probably the single biggest decision you'll make in your life. It's probably the decision that's going to affect more than anything the quality of your life, the future. It's, again, the single biggest decision you'll make. So obviously, there's a lot of room for anxiety, a lot of room for nervousness, and that can often block your natural feelings. And that's why you must speak to someone. You have to speak to someone, and when people come to ask me for advice, what my job is to just cut through the static. What my job is, I want to see what are you feeling and there's what's nerves and what's real feeling and if we were to take away the decision oftentimes I'll ask a person like this let's say you didn't have to make a decision if I just asked you would you want to be with this person not forever just you know do you want to continue dating you want to continue and that's how you take away sort of the pressure and sometimes you could discern what's really going on forget the decision forget married let's say you could date for forever do you, would you like to continue dating Usually, when you take away the pressure of the making of the decision, you could discern. But again, it's very difficult to do brain surgery on yourself. You need someone else, so I highly recommend that you have someone that you ask, you talk to, and hopefully can uh, can sort that out. Um, okay, <clears throat> how do you get over the fear of taking the next step, getting engaged? Yep, <clears throat> that is, by the way, again... You take the paper test, then you take the Bashar test, and you talk, and you talk. When I was going out, every date was reviewed by two Rosh Kolos and two Rosh Shivas. It's a nice goalie that I ever got married. I don't know. Not much a nice. But <clears throat> whatever the case, the point is you discuss it, you talk it, <clears throat> and then you reach a point where you have to pull the trigger. And I want you to know, I I remember this very clearly. Again, Berkshire, we're married almost 35 years now, and <clears throat> very happily, my wife's not here to disagree, so, but no, she, she'll agree. But anyway... I remember very clearly, I went through, we went through the dating process, and again, I discussed it, came out every day with, again, two Rosh Kolos and two Rosh Shivas. I was very close, a number of people in Yeshiva, um, and at a certain point, everyone agreed, it's right, go for it, and I'm about to pull the trigger, I'm about to, to ask my wife to marry, and, and I said to myself, how do I know? How do I know? How do I know? And you know what I realized at that moment? I don't know. I can't possibly know. I can't predict the future. I can't know where I'm going to be 20 years from now. I can't really know what I need for for life. And that's when I said, I've done my job. I did the paper test. I did the Bashar test. I did my shtalas. I spoke it over. Everything seems to be there. 
Now, Hashem, it's your world. I've done my part. You've done your part. I trust that you brought me to the right person. You close your eyes and you take that leap. But you have to have done your homework. Paper test, share test, talk it over. And if you get agreement that this is right, you say to yourself, but I don't know. How can You can't know. You can never know. But I'm not supposed to know. I trust Hashem to brought me to the right place, to the right person. I close my eyes. I take the leap, jump, and Hashem helps. Um, okay. Um, okay. Um, okay. My parents' marriage fell apart years back, and they had a really rough divorce. I'm afraid I'll end up in a marriage like theirs. How can I prevent that? <clears throat> because I hear too often that you're likely to marry somebody like your parent. That's exactly what I do not want. Okay, now it is somewhat true that often time you marry people like your parents. It's very interesting. Uh, but that's for a very interesting reason. You have a particular temperament, which likely is similar to your parents. And your parents' temperament probably were well met. By the way, let me begin with an important point here. I believe, and you could speak to Rabbanim, you could speak to Maritherapists, you could speak to people, it is my firm belief that 80% of the Gittin, 80% of the divorces that happen in our community should not be. It's not that they are mismatched, and not that they didn't get along. If I had a dollar for every time I said to my wife, that after dealing with a couple, they're a match made in heaven, living in Gehenna. Meaning it's not that they were mismatched, it's that they didn't know how to be married. So, um, let me give you one piece of advice. The piece of advice is, number one, I have to say, that I'm going to sound like a broken record, but get the ten really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make. This will give you a roadmap for a successful marriage. It'll let you know what you need. Now, at that point, you're going to have to say to yourself, once you understand the marriage, and once you understand what you need, you're going to have to do the very difficult work. Now, everyone says, I'm ready to work on a marriage, but I don't believe that many people understand what that means. And certainly not before you're married. You need a roadmap. You need a clear understanding of what work on the marriage is. You have to understand gender differences. And you have to understand when your husband gets ticked off every time you do X, Y, and Z, maybe there's a reason. And even if it doesn't bother you, but that's because you're a woman. And a man might be bothered by it. But you have to understand gender differences. You have to understand the relationship. You have to understand the tools that bond. You have to know how to use the tools. You have to know something called the art of the apology. Because I don't care. By the way, I have a rule. A successful marriage is not defined by whether you fight or not. There are many beautiful, long-standing marriages where from time to time the couples fight. Because you see, in the heavy traffic of life, we can't help but say things that are just not meaning to, but hurt the other person's feelings. You're too vulnerable, too close, everyone has their needs, and it just can't be that two people can always say the right thing in the right time, and it's invariable that even the best marriages are going to be times when there are going to be hurt feelings and there are going to be fights and sometimes words are expressed. That doesn't define a successful marriage or not. You see, it's not whether you fight or not. It's whether you know how to repair the rift and how to move on and make your marriage stronger or not. But learning how to repair the rift means knowing the art of the apology and knowing how to receive an apology. I spent a lot of time on the fourth parts of an apology and what's involved and why it's so hard to receive an apology, why it's so hard to ask, and what are you apologizing for? Because you see, when you're not married, you don't even understand what this means. But when you're married and you're really hurt and you're really vulnerable and you know that you have to apologize even though you feel you were also wronged, it never happens that one party says, I was absolutely wrong and my spouse was absolutely right. It's never what happens. I said, she said, she said, I said, and everyone is a victim. 
and yet the ability to, despite that fact that I was hurt, and despite the fact that I feel there was much done wrong, my ability to step up and apologize and begin repairing the rift, and by the way, on the receiving end, and the ability to receive an apology and what that entails and how to do it, it's also not so simple. Again, I spent almost an entire chapter on that piece alone. So the bottom line is, you have to trust your Creator to bring you to the right one, and you have to make sure you're as wholesome and happy as you can be before you get married. Let me see here with you another rule. <clears throat> Marriage is an institution, but it's not a hospital. If you're emotionally unhappy, if you're emotionally unsound, and you think that getting married is going to solve that problem, I have news to you, it will not. The only thing that marriage solves is being single. If you have anxiety, if you have problems, if you have things going on, typically everyone has a sense, well, I'll get married and all my problems will disappear. It's not true. What happens is you get married and your problems become exacerbated because not only do you have the issue you were dealing with, but now it functions within the relationship and it becomes much more difficult. You have to work on your stuff and you have to be aware of what you need and you have to be aware. And But when you work on your stuff and you come into marriage healthy and happy and you come in with a roadmap, again, you pick up the book and you read it. And by the way, again, if you go online, you not only get the book, but you get the audio book as well. So you can listen to it and you get the ebook and you can really pay attention to it and really let it sink in, you then trust your Creator to bring you to the right one, and you do the very difficult work of making a successful marriage. If your parents were unhappily married, that doesn't mean they weren't properly matched. And most likely, I hate to say it again, I don't know because I wasn't there, but it very well could be, like 80% of the time that it is, that it wasn't they were mismatched. They didn't understand what a marriage needed, they didn't do the work they needed, and therefore they ended up where they where they ended up. So I wish you much, much atzlocha, and you know, it's it's a tough situation, but roadmap is very help very helpful. Um, okay, um, if you aren't very important question here. If you aren't in a healthy enough place currently to date, and a shidduch is read to you that sounds like a possibility, what should you say to the shatran? You should say no, thank you. But why? Maybe it's my bashar. Maybe, but if you're not emotionally healthy. And that marriage is most likely going to fail. And it's even worse if it's the right one. Because if you get yourself together, work on your stuff, and then come back a year later, if she's still around, he's still around, and two years, whatever the time is, and then that marriage might succeed. If you're not emotionally put together, you cannot get married. Because you're going to get married, and you're going to find that, guess what? Your problems didn't disappear. Your problems became much more exaggerated, and much larger, because now you have all the relationship issues that begin to make your problem worse and your problem makes the relationship worse, and before you know it, life is not good. You've got to clean up your stuff again. Marriage is an institution, but it's not a hospital. It will not cure anything other than being single. So you've got to make sure you put together first, um, and <clears throat> you got it. Okay. Um, if someone wants to raise a hand, they can save my voice. Okay. Sippy, you have the floor. Go for it, please. Hi. Okay, Hi. thank you. Um my question is, I just want to clarify that Rabbi Schaefer is saying we should primarily get engaged and married with our heads, and the emotional part doesn't really have what to do with it, right? Uh, not exactly. I, no, I, I couldn't say that, no. I don't think, I hope I didn't, I hope, no. <laughs> what I was saying... No, that's what, that's, okay, yeah. sorry. Go ahead, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I, I, I obviously misunderstood and it wasn't sitting right with me, yeah, so that's what right. I'm trying to clarify. Right, no. You see, what you're really trying to tap into is the most intuitive sense within you. 
Hashem found the right one for you, and Hashem brought you to the person. The question is, is this the right one? How do you know? There's just a very deep, intuitive sense. It's not intellectual. It's not a math test. He rates on this scale and this scale. No, uh It's a very intuitive, natural sense. You see, the Rishiv, my Rebbe, the Rishiv, always would say, there's the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. The conscious mind processes but a minuscule amount of the information that the unconscious mind processes. I'll give you an example. You ever talk to somebody, you just have a feeling that they're not telling the truth? Now, scientists now measure, it's amazing. If I ask you a question and you respond, there's a latency, there's a certain time between my asking the question and you respond. Now, if you're telling me the truth, there's a given amount of time. If you're lying, what happens is, first you process the true answer, and then you, that's not what I want to say, you say the wrong answer, and there's a four hundredth of a microsecond, it's a microsecond, four hundredth of a second difference in latency between a truthful response and a and a sheker, and a lie. Now, my conscious mind will never pick it up, but my unconscious mind picks something that was out of cadence. It didn't, there was something, I can't define it. There's an intuitive sense. Your unconscious mind, which is your neshama, which is you, Hashem gave you exactly all the knowledge you need to find the right one. How do you do it? You go out and you see there's just a sort of sense. It just feels right. It's certainly not intellectual, but it's not emotional in a sense of, wow, I'm in love. It's it's an intuitive sense that, I don't know, the conversations flow and I enjoy his company. I look forward to being with him. Meaning, if you speak to a guy eight hours straight and you do that eight times in a row, my goodness, I... I how could you talk to somebody that you don't like? How could you spend that much time with a person and not be bored? That, to me, is one of the biggest simonim in the world. If you spend hours with a person, and you've done it a number of times, and you're not bored, you're not, you don't want to go home, why is that? I'll tell you why that is, because there's a certain... It just feels right. It just feels comfortable. And what you're looking for is... Rashid Zatal would always ask this question. Do you look forward to the dates? Do you look forward to being with her? Do you, do you want to spend time with... If, if you have that sense and you spend enough time that, that, that it warrants it, that's exactly what you... It's an intuitive sense. You, you know what I'm saying? I hear... I'm just trying to now understand the story of Shaper said about the boy who said, I know it's the right one, I just don't want it. I think that was an emotional response. He didn't he didn't want it, but we're saying it was still his best shirt? Probably. But he didn't want her because he knew it was the right one, but he wanted someone, whatever the issue was, prettier or smarter or whatever, fancy, whatever it might have been, uh, he didn't want her because he knew it was right. He knew she was the right one, um, but he wanted something else. And we can mess ourselves up. That's an example where the intellectual processing is messing up what in- intuitively he knows is right. I know what I want. I want someone richer, or taller, fancier, prettier, whatever it may be. And therefore, I'm not going to allow myself to to feel and to to agree to this one. Okay. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thank you. Okay. Please feel free to raise your hand if you have questions, because it's a lot easier than my having to read the questions. Um, but we are running out of time. We're running very late already. I see that. Um, okay. Oh, what about this? Is a tough question. What about when it comes to religious observance? Oftentimes, guys will be recommended, and Shalchanim will say they're growing, but at the moment, they're not where you prefer them to be. So and that's a gradient question, meaning. If it's a gross difference, it's off the table. And if it's a minor difference, so you go out and you see. Um, many times, by the way, many times couples get married where she's over here and he's here, and then two years later it's the opposite. Then three years later, you know, you, you don't have any guarantee. So 
if you're basically aligned, in other words, meaning if you're basically looking, you're holding in a, about the same place, there are always going to be differences in people. By the way, you know, I, I had a couple who, um, he was hyper-makbid about Lashon Hara. Hyper-makbid. And because of that, he couldn't respect his wife. She spoke Lashon Hara, not, she wasn't horrible, but she, you know, like, a, like, a, like the rest of us. Unfortunately, she spoke Lashon Hara. And he was hyper-makbid. Now, I had a little problem with his hakpada. Why? Because he would also get high three times a week on marijuana. He was also on pornography. And I would say to him, listen, fellow, with all due respect, like, before go calling the kettle black, check out your own kettle, you know? Now, we have these, like, uh, I, you know, I'm makbid about this, and she's not makbid about that, so she's not religious enough for me. I don't know, before you go, you know, again, if you're in vastly different places in terms of religious observance, I agree. That may be a sign that's not a shidduch, and you don't, you don't proceed. But if you're holding it about the same place, but it's minor nuances, then in fact, you know, I would say you, you go out and you see, you see if it's the right one or not. Um, okay, I think we dealt with a lot of questions. I'm certainly running out of steam. Let me just make one more. First of all, I want to thank again 10K Bhatti Israel. It's a wonderful organization. They're doing great work. If you have any ideas, please go to their website and please put in the ideas. Um, making shidduch and making suggestions, 10K Bhatti Israel. If you like a copy of the 10 really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make, if you go to the schmooze.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com, and you get a copy, it's a roadmap to a successful marriage. If you go online and buy it at the schmooze.com, you also get the audiobook, the ebook, as well as the Marriage Transformation Bootcamp as a free bonus. Please go to the schmooze.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com, and pick up a copy. If not, you can pick it up at the storm stores. But again, if you'd like the free bonus, the audiobook, the ebook, as well as the Marriage Transformation Bootcamp, then please go to the shmuz.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com. I want to thank the uh, the Chevre at 10K Bat Yisrael, and I wish you much, much Hatzlacha. Thank you.